0: Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullets original series dedicated to exploring gray-zone decisions in orthopedic surgery.
1: Uh, well, welcome to CoinFlips and Controversies. Uh, this episode uh, is going to be sponsored by the ASES National Shoulder and Elbow Week. Now, this will be taking place across the country in eight different locations. Uh, This will be the week of May 12th to 18th, uh, this coming May. I definitely encourage you to check it out. Um, The the locations that we'll be doing this year is Boston, Massachusetts, Buffalo, New York, Asheville, North Carolina, West Palm Beach, Florida, Denver, Colorado, Lexington, Kentucky, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, So please uh, come show some support for the ASCS. And if you live close to one of these locations, uh, I really encourage you to check it out. Uh, I'm Jacob Kirsch. Uh, I'm a shoulder surgeon in Boston. Um, I'm really uh, super excited today uh, to be able to uh, present this case and, and share uh, share tonight with a couple people that have really influenced me tremendously throughout my career. so I'm really excited for them to uh, share their knowledge and experience with us today. Uh, first person I wanted to introduce is uh, Dr. Michael Freehill. Uh, he's an associate professor at Stanford University, he's double fellowship trained in both sports as well as shoulder and elbow. Uh, He's the team physician for uh, Stanford University as well as the head physician for Stanford basketball and also uh, is a team doc for the Oakland A's. Uh, Additionally, I wanna introduce uh, Grant Gergoose, professor of orthopedic surgery at Rush, uh, shoulder and elbow surgeon, uh, also co-team physician uh, for the White Sox and Bulls uh, and in particular, he is an editor of a textbook on uh, skeletal trauma of the upper extremity, so particularly useful for uh, the webinar today. Uh, and then last but not least, I uh, want to introduce uh, Serena Namdari, another, another person who needs no introduction, uh, but a professor from orthopedic surgery at Rothman. He was my fellowship director. Um, he's also the co-director uh, of research at Rothman and often the very first person I call or text when I need to know about what to do for it at least. So excited he'll be able to share his experience and help educate us all today. So thank you all for joining us, Uh, and I guess we uh, we can get started on this case. Uh, So this was a a 60-year-old female patient. She uh, fell off a bicycle, that's what you get for trying to be healthy and active, um, and had a right shoulder injury. Uh, Came to me about a week after uh, she fell, uh, didn't have any prior shoulder issues, such a very active uh, of note, she was also a uh, professional musician. Just taking some uh, anti-inflammatories and Tylenol since her, since her injury. Uh, her history was relevant for a bicuspid aortic valve; she had an aortic valve uh, replacement and was on anticoagulation a history of prior uh, PE, actually. Um, and you know, the shoulder pretty much looked like a normal kind of post-traumatic shoulder, swollen, ecumatic, uh, Grossly, was uh, neurovascularly intact. Uh, So here are uh, the first uh, x-rays that we got. So here is uh, one x-ray view and uh, here's another x-ray view. So Serena, I was just, uh, could you uh, let me know what you think about these x-rays and what you think is going on so far?
2: Sure. Um, I think, you know, these views demonstrate what I would call a four-part proximal humerus fracture. There's um, displacement of the greater tuberosity, the lesser tuberosity, and the head segment. The head is in valgus, um, the joint is reduced, and the tuberosity is, at least on these views, do not look comminuted.
1: Do you, do you find that, generally speaking, using kind of the classic near for, you know, part classification, that that's particularly useful? Do you think that's, you know, it's something that we all learned as residents? Is that clinically super useful for you? Or how do you kind of think about that when, you're, when you see
2: a fracture? You know, I think it's a good way for us to talk about these things. Um, there's, you know, obviously been data that shows the test retest reliability in our observer intraobserver reliability can be can be somewhat suspect for these. But I think it at least gives us a language that we can use to, to talk about these. Does it affect the treatment? Well, you know, there are studies that have been published using those criteria that indicate that, you know, for example, if you see a four part and somebody over the age of 75, then you should be headed towards a reverse. So, you know, there there are treatment decisions that you can make based on the classification. So are they hard and fast and, and perfect? No, but I think there is utility to having having the classification.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Grant, are there, you know, these are just kind of, you know, there's an AP is it's kind of a Valpo are there other x-ray views you typically get or you kind of get what you get and you're going to eventually get something else anyway, so you don't really mind too much?
0: No, I, I think you can get a lot from the x-ray views. Um, anytime I see a proximal humerus fracture, I think, is there an associated glenoid fracture? That might change your thinking, and that's often. I think, is there a um, an associated dislocation? Those can be subtle, especially posterior ones. And then, is there a pathologic? Fracture, because especially in these elderly patients, this patient is only 60, but in some of your older proximal humerus fracture patients, it's not uncommon that they'll have some, you know, unknown um, metastatic lesion. So anytime I'm seeing proximal humerus, I'm thinking those three things, and I can rule those, pretty much rule those out on an x-ray. So so I I think x-ray is very helpful. Um, And and frankly, in some ways, it can be easier to interpret for surgical planning than a CT, because you're not just looking at slices, you kind of get a picture of the whole you know, how, how the pieces are deformed and the angulation, et cetera. So I, I find the x is very helpful. I think this Valpo view is a good choice if you can't get an axillary lateral. So I think these are nice.
1: Yeah. I just remember it was so painful as a resident going down to the ED trying to get an axillary because no one would want to touch the arm because there's a fracture. And uh, so right. going to a Valpo is a nice way to avoid a little bit of that pain. Uh, Mike, uh, you know, I, you know, any other imaging that you'd want to get, uh, figure out what you want to do for this patient or, are these x-rays, you know, sufficient to dictate your, what you're thinking?
3: Yeah, I've probably gone the opposite direction with regards to plain films. Um, you know, sometimes when they're in the ED or they come from an outside facility and they have five views, that's fine. I'll, I'll look at them all. I think that generally speaking, a, a grassy view and an axillary view is enough for me because I know in this particular case, um, I could, I, I, you know, I agree with what's been said, but I could deduce from those two images that this is a four-part fracture. There's some uh, more finer detail that we can't yet see with this imaging, but you can also tell that the joint is reduced. So I, I'm going to go to a CT scan here. So I'm going to I'm going to save the dollars that, at least at our institution, that these X-rays uh, cost, and you'd be surprised. So that's kind of uh, when I know I'm getting a CT scan. I'm not going to worry so much about the amount of of
1: X-rays. So I, I'd be okay here. Okay. There, you know what are what are instances when and we got a CT scan and we'll we'll show that. But are there ever instances when? you know, you'll do something more than a CT scan, CT angio or certain fracture patterns where you start to get more concerned about, I need something in addition to a CT. Is that that for the group?
3: Anyone, yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, I think if if this is a um, locked anterior dislocation and the head is tucked underneath the coracoid or medial to it, then that's a situation for me, especially if it's a little bit older, um, that I'm going to get a a CT angiogram just so I understand where the vessel is relative to the head segment. Um, Aside from that, uh, probably not.
1: Yeah, the the only other time where that, at least I've thought about doing it, is sometimes you see these ones where the shaft is, you know, really widely displaced, particularly medially. And when that shaft is really, uh, significantly displaced i always I sometimes get a little close that is to potential badness um, so we did get a ct scan so we'll, uh here is the One ct and that. So that
3: that's a really good point Trina. so every time if you have a chronic locked anterior you'll put, you'll do the angio every time
2: yeah i will um, and you know i think with those cases usually you're you can be safe as long as you stay underneath the subscap, but I still like to know just how, how close it is.
1: As as an aside, since it's a really good point that you brought up, I had one patient once who I know was subscap deficient, um, kind of early cuffed arthropathy, but MRI beforehand, we're treating her for chronic subscap insufficiency, dislocated, and then was missed for two weeks. So now she was chronically dislocated, and I know she had no subscap from beforehand, so that was another good instance to get it. In that instance, any other uh, pearls as far as, you know, you don't have the subscap to
2: necessarily stay behind to protect you, any any pearl there? For me, it depends on how close the vessel is. So that's a great reason to get the scan because if the vessel is directly on top of the head and it's been there for, you know, two weeks or more, that's a case, I'm going to have vascular there with me because there's a high chance I'll avulse the side sidewall of the vessel getting it off. Um, if there, if the vessel has some distance, then you can take down conjoint um, and pec minor, or you can just take down pec minor and try to push it from the medial to the lateral side. Um, so I think you have some options there. And if it the more chronic it is, the more likely I'd be to just take down the pec, uh, pec minor and the conjoint.
0: Yeah, and I think Serena makes some good points. Again, talking about a different case, if, if you're doing, uh, you know, an arthroplasty and it's a chronic anterior fracture dislocation, you know, that's one where I don't worry about repairing that subscap. I just stay on bone, release uh, the subscap often and leave the subscap and the plexus and the vessels and all that stuff that it's plastered to, just leave that immediately. I don't even try to repair that if it's been out for for, for some time. And I think it's going to be scarred there. So obviously not this case here, but that's a good pearl for the other thing you mentioned, Jacob, is if it's out for a little bit and they're still articulating, so, um, you know, they can erode, you know, this in a fracture situation, that's one thing, but if it's just a dislocation, like a glenoid fracture with an anterior dislocation and a subscap deficient patient, we see those, they erode through the glenoid pretty quickly. Usually osteoporotic folks and so you just got to make sure imaging is relatively current because you may have some uh some glenoid bone deficiency if you're dealing with that case
1: yeah absolutely all all really uh really useful points um so here's the the CT scan uh, I'll go through a few uh few cuts that we go through I do find uh getting the CT scan in isolation I I find challenging for me personally but getting it with the 3d reconstruction at least for me just makes it uh, I, I feel like it's a, a lot easier to get a sense of what's going on. Um, so, you know, it it shows what we expected to sh- see a uh, four-part pathway. some combination with the greater tuberosity looks uh, relatively good. Um, you know, does this, you know, when everyone saw the initial x-rays, I'm sure they already started thinking about how they were thinking about this. Do you think that this adds or subtracts anything to that that will give you any more information that would not change it
0: i think it helps me so um you know it, it kind of looks like that mickey mouse logo right with the two ears and the head there so that's that's not a good thing right that means that you have a a four-part fracture um it, it also tells me there's some comminution you know she she's only 60 she, you painted this picture of a healthy active person her bone didn't get the memo. This this looks like a poor bone quality fracture. It's comminuted. It looks like, th- this looks like a a more um, elderly fracture pattern as opposed to a young, higher energy fracture pattern. So that might influence my treatment as far as do I think this will hold plate and screws. So that comminution is helpful for me to see and I didn't fully appreciate that on the plate films.
1: She doesn't live out in sunny California where Freehill is, you know, she's up here in, in Boston where we do not get as much sunlight. Um, cool. Well, I think, I think that, um, I think that kind of summarizes a lot of that. So, you know, so, you know, Grant, you started talking about it, you know, looking at the fracture pattern, you started thinking about, you know, the first question is, you know, are you going to talk to this patient about the population or not? You know, first decision in the decision tree really is, you know, is this something that you're going to think about doing surgery for or, or, no, or no surgery? What, what's your thought process like, you know, in general, how you approach patients and, and we need to get to the
0: patient. how, how we approach the decision of surgery versus non-surgical management
1: yeah yeah these proximal humerus fractures you know, you know there's often these factors that we talk about age the fracture characteristics their activity level if she's a professional musician what their occupation is you know how, you know when you're talking to a patient how do you kind of start to gen, you know generally synthesize that for them and then in yeah. this unique patient you know how how would you go about
0: that I mean, I'm sure we all have our own own thoughts. For me, the the patient's kind of activity level, their vocation, avocation is so much more important than the fracture pattern, quite honestly. Um, so that's that's point number one. Number two, you know, the bone quality is not really well captured on these things. So that's kind of something we think about. Um, and then and then, uh, do I think they would be a good arthroplasty candidate? I know there's some conflicting data on this and Serena has written some of this, some of these papers, but basically I still believe that for most fracture patterns, if you do a reverse on a delayed fracture, it can do as well as an acute reverse. Now there's some discrepancy and Serena might, might disagree. I think if your shaft is really medialized, you have a head fracture dislocation or you have tuberosity that's healed around the back, that might be a chronic one, a difficult one to reconstruct. The reason I'm bringing this up is if I think they're going to do just as well with a reverse later versus now, and I'm thinking that that is an option for me as a bailout option, I'm much more cavalier with non-operative treatment because I know I have an excellent backup plan for that particular patient.
2: I agree. I I think Graham brings up great points. I think for me, a lot of it is based on the overall health of the patient. Um, You know, I feel like a lot of this is a blink test. You know, you go in the room and you within about 20 seconds have a sense of whether this person is an appropriate surgical candidate or somebody that you would treat non-surgically. And, you know, we we all have these patients who have horrible looking proximal humerus x-rays and then they come in at, at three months and they can raise their arm up higher than you would have ever anticipated based on their original and then their subsequent healed You know X-ray. I think I think Grant's point is really great though because you know I do think that the the majority of of proximal humerus fractures that we would choose to do a reverse in will do better if you do them acutely as opposed to delayed because you're more likely to get the tuberosity repaired. They're more likely to get their external rotation. But there are nuances to that that have not been teased out in the literature, and I think that's what he's getting at some of these cases the tuberosity is actually not in a terrible position like you look at this case it's not rotated around the back the tuberosity the greater tuberosity is actually in a decent position the, everything else is displaced but the greater tuberosity is in a decent position so you know his point is well taken and that's a patient that if is a little bit sicker a um, little bit older uh, may, maybe has a history that um, is you're not that comfortable with, and if they want to try for non non-surgical treatment, that'd be a very reasonable one, even at sixty, um, to to consider treating non-surgically.
1: Yeah, I, I think that point. You know, really understanding where the tuberosity is, and you know, I think one of the first questions I always ask myself is, okay, if you know, one is this going to heal? Like sometimes you see them, and they're not even in the same zip code, and you're like, okay, the non-union rate's likely high. We plan to do something about it if they're medically reasonable enough. But if it's going to heal, and then the next question is, is how hard is going to my next procedure going to be if it heals and they're not happy? And sometimes you're like, you know, if it's nowhere close, that's going to be a really challenging reverse if you have to go to it. Where other times you're like, yeah, the tuberosity's not bad. This kind of sets you up for something if they are unhappy or don't particularly do well. I think the fracture pattern really dictates, though. So I really worry about those, you know, those various posterior medial fractures more so than these valgus-impacted ones because various malunions are really challenging to to deal with um, as opposed to these, particularly if it heals and patients are unhappy, I feel.
3: Hey, Jake, this, uh, and going back to when you, you know, first put this up, online this case it's it's a it's a great case on so many levels uh based on the age of the patient you know not that old based on the fact it's the uh, dominant arm a professional musician or a musician uh you know just piece after piece makes it very difficult uh with regards to decision making but this is a good example of if if you didn't get the ct scan I think that a lot of what's already been pointed out with the amount of comminution that's more with the, I agree, the, the tuberosities, especially the graders in a pretty good position, but it's much, much more kind of superiorly displaced than you could recognize on the, on the plane films, in my opinion. And there's probably more metaphysical defect there. So if you were going to try to OIF this, I think it's a, it's a probably a different ball of wax than what you would go in thinking you're going to get. And um, you know, to your question of how you treat this, I a lot of times I'll think if you can do if you can leave it non-op, but in this case uh, it wouldn't do well, obviously, just because of the tuberosities. And then when you start talking about ORIF, kind of to, to Grant's point about what's going to happen at the second surgery, I mean we have trauma surgeons here with you know Gardner and Bishop and Goodnow who are are, muse- are magicians with with putting these back together. But I think in this case it would be difficult to predict how that's going to go. And at least in it, it, my experience has been very similar to the literature. When you go to do that reverse after the ORIF, you know that the results aren't as good. So it, I think the decision making right now is critical. And and you got to put the patient in what, what they're trying to get back to uh,
1: as the primary driver. Sure. So we'll kind of go down the line, starting with Serena, then Grant, then Mike, you know, so first question is, you know, six year old, uh, this is the fracture pattern they're in your office. You know, is this someone that you're talking about non-operative treatment to? Is this something that you're going to kind of push the conversation to surgery? Or is this something where it's purely shared decision-making? You're like, look, here are your options. You purely decide, because I feel like there's always a, a, you know, for better or for worse, a certain, um, paternalistic element where you can kind of push the conversation a little bit in one way or is this purely you have a conversation and you let them decide and then also what your recommendation would be
2: yeah so i think you know there are there are patients who you will clearly steer one way or another based on a lot of factors their health you know their age their comorbidities and you may steer them a certain way and be pretty forceful with what you think would be the best thing for them if they were your relative or family member. There are other patients like this that I think are, you know, why this is a good case to present because you can go non op, you can go operative, you can go RIF, you can go reverse, and nobody could really fault you for any of those three. So for me, this is a discussion where I tell the patient this fracture has a very high chance of healing, um, 85% chance that it will heal. And if it heals, your pain will likely go away for the most part. You will have uh, low level pain if any, um, but your function is going to be less predictable. And um, I don't know if you'll get overhead function or not. You may be chest tight and below. And if you're okay with that, then treating this non-operatively is very reasonable. If you're not okay with that, then we think about the surgical options. And my guess is for a 60 year old professional musician, that unpredictability is not going to be something that she will want at the age of 60. So because of that, then it would turn into a surgical discussion. And for me personally, this is a plan A and a plan B. And so what I'll talk to this patient about is that I think the best result with uh, approximately immerse fracture is to get it anatomically reduced and healed the way that it was before and if we can preserve your bone and do that then i think that will be your best outcome in terms of of range of motion and, and function and so this that's plan a plan b is a reverse if i cannot get this reduced anatomically or if the bone is not adequate quality to support the fixation and so when i go into surgery i would try to get this perfect and i think for every surgeon that's going to be different And so there are cases that I'll be able to get perfect and there are cases I won't be able to get perfect. And Grant may be able to get some of those cases perfect that I can't because he has some technical skill that I don't have. And so I think at the end of the day, you just have to be honest with yourself about whether you can get this perfect um, or not. And if you can get it perfect, you can get your hardware in the appropriate positions that people have written about, Um, you can bone graft a little bit of that lateral side that's going to be deficient after you bring up that head from its valgus position, then I I would fix this. And if I couldn't get it perfect, I would not spend two hours. If I couldn't get this perfect after 30 minutes or so, then I would go to a reverse, but I would have both available.
1: I think that's a, a really uh, great way of thinking about it. It's actually a really nice segue. One of the articles that we have listed for this case, I'll just pull up really quickly. Uh, and so this is a study that I think really emphasizes uh, the point Serena just made. Uh, so this was a, a study from Germany where they looked at you know the quality of reduction and how it influences outcomes after open reduction internal fixation for these uh, comminuted you know, really like four part fractures. And what's interesting is in this study, you know, overall, if you look at everyone, they had a 33% complication rate, 28% reaction rate, but they found an acceptable reduction in only 41% of the cases. So that means 59% of the time they were mal-reduced. And when they looked at the complication rate, it really directly correlated with their ability to get that perfect reduction, like Serena was talking about. So in the 41% of times where they had that acceptable reduction, the complication rate was 20%, um, compared to when it was malreduced. It was twice that. It was 41%. So I think to his point, it's it's really well you know well taken that these are hard fractures. They're challenging, and your ability to get that perfect reduction directly correlates with how they do. And you know even in a you know trauma trained you know uh, people who do this a lot. You know 60 and 59 percent of the time uh they classified it as as a mal reduction so uh, uh, worthy to to think about uh grant what what about you
0: yeah i think a lot of great points made uh, by both you and serena you know a a poorly done oraf is worse than non-op every day so you know i think i think we can all agree on that so i think you know, for me, it's a discussion, right? It, it, so, hey, she's a musician. You know, what's your instrument? Is this the timpani and you're doing all this kind of stuff? Or are you playing the piccolo? I, I need to know a little more about this patient, activity levels, what they're doing. For me, and that's to decide really non-op versus op. I tell them, listen, with non-op, you're going to be able to do anything in this box right here. You'll be able to get to the top of your hair, especially if you bend your neck down a little bit, but I can't guarantee above that. Some patients say wow, I have so many medical comorbidities. You're telling me I can get that and not take surgical risk? Great, I'll take that. And those patients have pre-selected for for non-op treatment and that that makes it a very easy discussion. Some patients, like you've picked a great case here, Jacob. This is a kind of a tweener in terms of age and fracture morphology and everything. But if this person, it sounds like, is more active and going to be using their arms as a musician, we're going to lean towards operative. For me, this case looks like it's straight out of the Hertel et al article uh, talking about a 97% AVN rate when the medial metapsial head extension was less than seven millimeters and the hinge is disrupted by greater than two millimeters. In other words, in that study, when the lesser and greater off and the headpiece has no calcar if you will no metaphyseal head extension you don't get that blood supply from anywhere to that head and you, I don't know if you can scroll around or show that so this is one where this head is is dead head walking this is this is not going to live now you're you're very high likelihood of getting AVN now maybe you can still do an RAF in a very young patient and and hope that the AVN is minimal and and revise it later but for me if this patient's going to surgery with those that level of comminution and that head morphology with disrupted hinge, no head extension, I'm I'm not going to try ORF. I'm going straight for reverse, even though they're 60. Right, if she you said, think hey, that I'm a hinges, crossfitter and like, I need this, hey, we'll give it a shot, but I would consider that not as effective on my hands typically.
2: Grant, you don't think that hinge is intact there? Isn't I don't know, I mean,
0: changed? I'd want to look at the CT. I, I I don't think so, I don't know. if, Like you said, if it's intact, then it's a different ball game. It's, it's hard for me to tell, honestly, on some of these cuts. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. If you think it's intact, it's less than two millimeters displaced, for sure. Tilt it back up, get it out of valgus, put the tuberosities down exactly as Serena said. If you think it's disrupted and there's no periosteum attached, you know, bridging that, then I think it's a different story. And you could, you could get your axial CTs and really um, on your uh, coronal slices and answer that question, you know, very objectively. Sure.
1: What do you think, Mike?
3: I, I agree with everything that's been said thus far. Um, same conversation. I think non-op in this particular case is 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 not the best choice because I think there'll be limitations and she'll need something else down the road. Not to say that's bad, but I don't think that she'll be happy in the near term. I think ORIF, at least in my hands, is, is going to for this particular patient, it would be very uh, would not be as predictable, uh, and I think she's going to go on to need something else on top of that. The one, and I, I agree that definitively she'll get a reverse. But I'll tell you, I I'm not a huge fan of hemiarthroplasty. I don't I don't do. I mean, it's it's a very. I might do one or two a year for particular reasons, but you know this one for whatever reason. I contemplated a bit and I and I don't know if it's what what uh, instrument does she play?
1: Uh, she's a concert pianist.
3: Okay. So, so she needs yeah. that. Okay, okay. so okay. the you know different if you're playing a you know a string instrument where you're, you know your arm depending on how it's moving and I was thinking if that was the case where you're you know stringing with the bow would would a hemi potentially just the repetitions and that particular motion be more predictable knowing that you're going to use modular components at some time at some point in the, in her life she's probably going to be converted maybe um i just i worry about it you know sometimes it's hard to gauge even though you do a perfect job how much extension they get and if your arms going back into that position but if she's a pianist i think that uh, at least in my hands, having all the information that uh, you could do a very good uh, reverse, and you're going to have a very good shot at great outcomes with those tuberosities that that look pretty decent. And doing that as your primary in this acute setting, I think would would give the most predictable uh, result in my hands.
1: Yeah, that was really nice leadway to some of these uh, poll questions we had. So the first one, uh, really interesting, is, is how would you manage this patient? Um, and, you know, I think obviously it's tough when you're a poll, you're kind of forced into one or the other, uh, but here's the answer. So 94% of patients, uh, of people who took the poll, uh, selected operative management. Um, and, you know, I, I, think admittedly, I thought, I think this was higher than what I anticipated that being, uh, you know, 90% seems a lot, you know. I know we have this, uh, you know, this proffer study that says they, they all do, they all do the same. So, you know, you know, 94% seems like a lot. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that's where, um, you know, interpreting the literature and using your own experience, uh, may vary a bit, but again, 94% seemed uh, a little, a little high for what I anticipated, but you know, it's interesting. And then the the second question was really what we were getting at, you know, if you chose operative management, uh, what procedure would you perform? And it's interesting when you look at the results, a very, very split, um, basically between ORIF and and, and arthroplasty, which is, you know, one of the reasons I thought it was a a good case because it would be controversial. Um, You know, Serena, you mentioned, you know, your plan A and your plan B. Um, I think that's a great approach. How often do you feel that you go into the OR with, you know, I'm going to give this 30 minutes an hour. If I can't get it perfect, I'm going to reverse. Or what percentage of the time you're saying, I'm definitely
2: fixing this first. I'm definitely doing a reverse. So aside from a two part, um if it's if it's not a two part, I w- I will always have a reverse in the room and I will always have the conversation with the patient about it just in case. Um uh, but I would say the the cases that I actually you know, um, think about plan A, plan B, and it's got a high chance of going either way. It's 50-50. I mean, I'd say it's probably 30% of my proximal humerus fractures that I take to the operating room. I think the other 70% are pretty clear cut. They're widely displaced two parts that I'm going to fix definitively or a really comminuted four part that I'm putting a reverse in. Uh, but I'd say 30% of them are kind of in that gray zone.
1: Yeah. And then, um, you know, Grant, uh, getting back to the first question, you know, operative versus non-operative, let's just say you're treating this patient non-operative, right? What would, you know, you see the patient, they fell three days ago. You know, what do you typically do as far as how often will you see them in the office? you put them in a sling, a mobilizer, get an X-ray, how often, like, how, what's your typical protocol if you're going to manage them non-operatively? How do you think about them?
0: Yeah. So, I'll definitely answer that question. Also, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to comment on the pro study as well. But yeah, as far as your question, first of all, as a surgeon, you know, patient comes to you and you say, hey, listen, I've looked, you know, we have this discussion, non-operative. It's important to let them know, hey, I'm still your doctor. I'm still going to manage this. I'm still going to follow you or my team. will." Um, so I typically will see them at the three week mark uh, post-injury as well. I feel like if things move or change, it's pretty unusual, actually, that there's significant changes, but occasionally there'll be something, you know, greater tube browsing that initially live the and now kind of pulls up. They're one thing. So I'll see them in three week mark. Um, our protocol starts some very gentle passive motion. Uh, actually they do pendulums only at the beginning and then they start some passive motion at four weeks when the things have gelled in and then at six weeks they get rid of the sling altogether. So I see them at three weeks just for a, a check, six weeks uh, we're getting rid of the sling and we're starting active assisted to active range of motion progression. And then we start kind of strengthening it at three months. So it's three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. Um, you know, occasionally some subset of these patients we'll see later because they still have stiffness issues or they don't do well with non-optimum. That's, that's the typical thing. As far as the Profer study, I just wanted to comment. You mentioned that it's a huge randomized level one trial. Uh, the ortho bullets folks doing the poll, obviously didn't, um, didn't, didn't uh, fully agree with that study, which which I think is correct. So if you read the study, it says essentially that on its surface, it looks like it says that non-operatively treated fractures do as well as operatively treated. If you read the methods section, there are a couple things that I think make the study maybe not mean what it purports to mean. So one particular thing is that all fractures that met operative indications were included or were, were excluded. So in other words, they took all the fractures that were operative out of the study, and then randomized the rest. And not surprising, there was no benefit of surgery. So again, the devil's in the details, and I think um, I think that study the impact is a little bit uh, blunted by some of those methodological issues.
1: Oh, absolutely! Actually, one of you know one of the the many things that uh, I learned from Serena was that it's a great study to quote people if you really don't want to operate on them.
2: Um, i'm glad you learned something that that is correct <laughs> <laughs> i learned that i'm teachable i'm teachable um yeah so
1: you know and uh, do, you, do you ever are there certain fracture patterns or patients where you think you need to see them you know you know weekly or you think it's okay you know three weeks is a good time point and then you know are there ones that you worry about a little bit more you keep a closer eye on them or you think that's a good time point
0: i mean for me i feel like it if I see them at three weeks, I I can get them on quickly on the schedule if, if some unusual thing happens and I could still intervene before there's a malunion. So for me, that makes sense. But I mean, different people have different comfort levels with it. But that that I feel like I still have an opportunity to salvage if something unusual happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, you know, one other uh, you know, Serena, you brought up, you know leaning towards doing a open reduction internal fixation see how it works um if you can get it great if not go to reverse you know I, I was very fortunate enough to see you know this done you know incredibly well when you got to do it and i know that i probably can't replicate that as well but i was wondering if you could share some of your pearls for doing this you know when do you decide to use you know bone graph can chips a strut uh bone void fillers you know how, how do you, you know Take some of these really complex fractures, and uh, you know, when there are concerns about comminution and bone quality, and some you know, tips about when you'll use different things to to get it right.
2: Yeah, so I think getting the reduction is like we talked about, job one, and so you know, for me, I do these now only through a delta pec, um, and so that can present some challenges, harder to get at the tuberosity. Um, to get the deltoid out of the way, a lot of times you're using a levering retractor like a Brown or or a Homan, which will malreduce your head segment. Um, so so those are challenges that you have to deal with. And so when I'm dealing with a fracture like this, which is valgus impacted, and I think potentially the medial hinge may be intact, then I'm doing minimal dissection of the tuberosities and the head segment. I think the less you try to mobilize things and devascularize, the better. And so um, I'll do my standard approach, Delta pec. and then my first job is to push the head up. And so I'll take a cob, um, I'll try not to disrupt that medial hinge, and I'll just push the head, levering it back up into a normal neck shaft angle. And once I've done that, then I'll pin it there. And so I put my pins around the periphery of the head, and what those pins do are they retract the deltoid out of the way, without using a levering retractor. So now your head and shaft are aligned and you don't have any retractor in the shoulder that's actually pushing the head into a displaced position. And then you can fill the void, which is going to exist. And in this case, there's going to be a lateral void because that bone has been impacted. And so that I'll fill with uh, cancellous chips. And I prefer cancellous chips for most cases because it won't affect any revision operation. And so I'll pack that. And then that does a couple of things. One is it provides some structural stability beneath your head. But two, once you get your greater tuberosity reduced and you put your plate on, it prevents you from over reducing your tuberosity. When you bring the plate down a bone, if there's no bone medial to the tuberosity, it'll push the tuberosity further in than it really should be. And so that bone graft. Will prevent that from happening so i get the head reduced i pin it in place a bone graft and then i'll reduce the tuberosities pin them in place and make sure that my x-ray looks perfect and so the plate does not go on for me until the fracture is reduced anatomically and then it's a sawbones, and you know it's all about getting our screws in the right position but i think those are the tricks fibulas i try really hard not to use um, the only time I'll use a fibula is in a case that I think has low risk for AVN. And that's usually the widely displaced two part in the elderly patient that's got calcar loss or comminution. And so that's the case that I'll use a fibula because I think the likelihood of that patient needing um an arthroplasty and going on to AVN is is, is very low. And so far I haven't gotten burned with that approach.
1: Yeah, I think all those are amazing comments, and you know, not only are uh, thought process about when to use bone graft, how you do it, the retractor placement, the uh, the iron throne, if you will, of the uh, what all the K- ky's look like in there. And then you know I think the screw position is really important, and you know I know you published on this. You know really being in the bottom twenty five percent towards the calcar twelve millimeters above that is really where you want that to be. So all uh, all good points. There was one other uh, orthovilts ar- uh, article that we had included looking at uh, lock plate fixation for these. Uh, types of fractures and patients over the team. Uh study from you know John Barlow at Mayo Clinic, um, and you know recent study looking at uh, you know a high uh, you know almost 173 patients, uh, and you know directly relating to fracture type. So we talked about this early on, three part, three part, four part. How this may correlate with uh, different. Uh, uh operative outcomes and you know they found a 39% failure rate in three part fractures correlating with around 14% reoperation and about a 45% failure rate in four part fractures with 18% reoperation so again uh the stakes are high certainly in these uh more comminuted uh fractures particularly patients over 60 um and as you know uh mike uh, mentioned earlier you know the ORIF after or the reverse after a failed ORIF is not a not a fun procedure, um, and so we'll shift gears a little bit talking about arthroplasty. So I think this was really interesting. You know, if you're going to choose an arthroplasty, which would you perform? Uh, you know, uh, when we look at the, out, uh, the the results, it was a little bit uh, more mixed than I anticipated. About 18% of patients, uh, or patients, 18% of people selected hemiarthroplasty, 46 reverse. Uh, Mike, I know you mentioned uh, hemiarthroplasty as something you were potentially thinking about before, um, certainly a, an operation that uh, really needs to be done perfectly in order to do well. Any uh, tips or tricks uh, that you have uh, in your experience doing that uh, in these patients? Well, I probably have a lot more
3: tips of why not to do them personally, but uh, it didn't stop me in the, in this case from contemplating it. Yeah, you know, I'd be interested to, to to hear your threes I thoughts on why the Hemis do so poorly and if this is just straight up a tuberosity issue. You know, the tuberosities don't heal, obviously, if that's the case, or they heal partially and your cuff is is at risk or not really maximized you know you have your reverse so it's not an issue anymore and i have to think that that's probably the case but I, i'd love to know in this like each from each of you like what what would be the main reason in this particular case you would not do a hemi and you would lean towards a reverse if that's what you were going to do frontline
1: yeah i think you know uh unfortunately there's uh, there's been a run around here where i've uh gotten these Failed cemented hemiarthroplasties for fracture as a second opinion, and those are really not fun to deal with when you have these uh, hemiarthroplasties where the tuberosities don't heal. They're cemented, and often not a convertible stem. So now you have a cemented stem in uh, proximal humeral bone loss, and those become challenging, challenging situations to deal with. Now the vast majority of people, uh, you know, people are doing these in, or again, they tend to be. Older, maybe not old, you know, sixties. You know, different. If someone has, you know, a bad head split fracture and they're they're forty or something like that, um, that's certainly not common. So, you know, I think it's certainly a a very reasonable option. Um, I think it's also a reasonable option to think about if someone has like a common axillary nerve injury and you're worried about, you know, you know, you're putting too much tension on them with a reverse. Are they going to be unstable? So, I think Hemi is at least uh, within the realm of consideration for, for that. But for most of these patients, they're going down the arthroplasty road, you know, predictable, um, you know, even if your tuberosities aren't aren't, aren't perfect.
0: Jacob, I want to, I think you made some great points there. I think, you know, you have a small wafer of bone with the tension of the rotator cuff on it, and you're basically asking it to heal to little bit of cortex and then metal. And I think that's the problem. You know, there are certainly some fe- features about getting the head right and the right amount of retroversion um, that Pascal Boileau has shown are helpful technically. But the bottom line is, is even if you do the operation perfectly, you're still going to have a high rate of failure for the hemi. That's the biggest issue. I mean, Boileau study, Court Brown study 50% rate of tuberosity non-union and those 50% are pseudo-paralytic. So Even if you do everything right, get your head in the right spot, suture technique to really get everything back together, bone grafting, all the different tricks that we talk about. And for that reason, I haven't done a hemi in 10 years. I think 10 years ago, I did one that was an associated glenoid fracture, and I ORF the glenoid and then did a hemi. But I just find, as others have found, it's an unpredictable operation. I've got some great ones. Of course, when I give a talk on hemis, I'm going to show these awesome results, but I've got some where I, the tuberosities were perfect and they just melt away. And I, you know, as surgeons, we really crave predictability, and that's what our patients want too.
2: Yeah, I think I think Grant's point's uh, great. And and you know, the issue for me is that even with the most modern day techniques, most modern day implants. If you look at the rates of tuberosity failure, non-union, it's at least 20%, up to 50%, like Grant said. So that means even before you entertain the other complications that happen with surgery, stiffness, nerve injury, infection, even before you count those other ones, at least 20 to 50% of your patients are going to do poorly. And so it's just a hard pill to swallow. So for me, to answer Mike's question, it's it's patients who are either um, too young too active or too unreliable for a reverse. Um, if you're thinking about the the unreconstructable proximal femur fracture, it would have to fit into one of those categories for me to start thinking hemi. And so for this patient, she doesn't seem too young, she doesn't seem too unreliable, and she doesn't seem too active for it. So I wouldn't think about it here. But you know, there are certainly patients that I that I do think about it and then do it very rarely.
1: All good points. Um, and so one last article that we uh, had tied to uh, the fourth of bullets on this. Uh, this is a randomized controlled uh, study looking at uh, reverse shoulder arthroplasty compared to RIF uh, displaced proximal humerus fractures in patients over 65. So, you know, a little bit older than this patient. Um, and, you know, particularly for the type C or, you know, really four-part proximal humerus fractures, they really found that at every Time point, um, you know, patients did better with reverse uh, compared to RIF. When you looked at the overall complications uh, and revision rates, you know, they had eleven percent with reverse compared to about twenty percent RIF. And when you looked at revision rates, about six percent reverse, and it was about double that. It was twelve percent with RIF. So, you know, I think for for residents or fellows or even you know people who are are, are taking their boards. I think this is a very reasonable art- article to be able to justify um, some of the decision making, even if the patient doesn't perfectly uh, match that age criteria. Um, and yeah, so this it is, is
3: that'll be interesting. I think uh, two notes from a couple of these articles that I think, just in case we glazed over them, is it was interesting on the ORIF with with and without fibular strut how the complicate or failure rate was the same, thirty three percent versus thirty four percent. You know that that's not the ma- the magic answer of fibular strut because that is popular even though with this group it's not as much but a lot of people do do that out there put some kind of uh graph like that not chips and then i think on that last study it's interesting and we're going to see it in our lifetime the two-year follow-up versus you know what does this cohort look like at 10 years and
1: uh and how that plays out yeah no absolutely i think those are good points Um, So this was kind of an interesting question. So, you know, let's say you're going to operate on this patient, whether it's a reverse or fixing them. What to you, you know, Mike, what's the ideal time to to operate on a shoulder that just had a proximal humerus fracture for you?
3: Well, uh, I don't think it's so straightforward. I think that the points that Grant made were outstanding. I think that um, there's I think that the the more acute you do it, like in a case like this, I think that it would I, I would tend to do this earlier on this patient, but I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, you know, the 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 patient that you want to go the non-op route initially with for any number of reasons, and then you you do a delayed reverse on them. So so to me, there's not a cut and dry answer. It depends on the patient and the fracture pattern and everything that's going along with the, the particular
1: situation yeah. or case. Yeah. So, you know, like this lady, she had a, you know, aortic valve replacement, anticoagulated. So, you know, would you try to, you know, get them to the first few days, have them stop anticoagulation, wait a week, two weeks, is there a window? If you're going to operate on them that you feel like, oh, this is the sweet spot to do it. Earlier is better, you feel?
3: I mean, I'm in this case,
1: kidding. I would say when she's, you know, when she's
0: cleared. Grant, what do you? Any sweet spot for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with real on this. You know, when she's cleared, you know, with insurance and anti it's, it's going to take. It's going to be between one and three weeks probably, and you know, scheduling and all that. But, but you could do it sooner. Though the one thing that I have seen is if you do it like five, six weeks out, um, you can get like some HO and you can get some weird kind of like, um, kind of hyperemic reactions where everything's kind of in that early healing phase and, and and then get a little stiffer. You know, they've been in the sling now for six weeks and then they're going back in the sling. So, you know, if you're going to do it, I do it in the first couple of weeks or I do it, you know, chronically on the back end. I I, I would try to avoid doing it like five, six, seven weeks after the injury, I think that's not, that's not an ideal time to do it.
2: Yeah. And I think we, we, we talk about getting proximal humerus fractures when you fix them perfect, you know, but that the same goes for a reverse. I mean, if you're doing it early and early, I would say like both, both these guys said around earlier than about three weeks, you have a good chance of being able to make it look perfect so that it actually looks like a primary reverse done for another indication once it's healed. So when that patient comes in to see you in the office six months later, you're not totally sure that you did it for a fracture or not. Um, that's the ideal. That's what you want, and that ensures that the tuberosity is in the proper place. And I really do think that there isn't enough power to really study this, but I think that that does influence the ultimate result. You'd like your reverse to look like your standard reverse, even though you're doing it for fracture, and you have a much better chance of doing that earlier. So yeah, it's great if you can get to these within three weeks, but if they need a stress test or something else, I mean, you don't really have much of a choice.
1: Yeah. All, all fantastic points. I I agree. I feel like, you know, in an ideal world, it's either you get to it, it comes in on call or something and you do it right then and there, if they're able to, or I found that kind of 10 day to 14 day window where enough of the swelling has come down. They're not, people aren't as friable, uh, tends to be a little bit easier to, uh, to work with, uh, and it's got a little bit all over the map on the pole. Um, and then you know this kind of gets into uh, you know all right. So for doing a reverse uh, for this fracture, um, you know, Grant, what are you you know stepwise? You know, what are the best tips you have as far as how do you get this reverse for fracture perfect? You know, Serena gave a great overview on you know fixing this. Um, so if you're doing a reverse, how, how are you trying to give this lady you know one shot? Uh, best operation what are you best for how you're going to go about it
0: yeah so you're going to get control your tuberosities you're going to get the head out of there put in the glenoid size i use this i used to use kind of different glenosphere sizes for fracture versus you know non-fracture indications i'm kind of using the same one that i use for everything else now um you know get your sutures for fixation um for the for the kind of height that's really critical right um I think that, you know, you can measure the length of your tuberosity, um, and that's a very, very helpful landmark to me, often with these fracture patterns, typically the osteoporotic fractures are gonna have kind of that calcar piece intact, though not always, so that you can essentially have your implant kind of rest immediately. For me, for fixation, um, I'm a big proponent of cement fixation. Um, there are people that get great results with press fit devices. The one thing you got to watch out for is if you're using a press fit device, the tendency is to put in the implant into the humeral shaft until you get good scratch fit of your implant without any respect of the humeral length and the tension of the deltoid. That is a problem. You need to have that humeral socket at the appropriate height or your delta is going to be too loose and you're going to have a higher instability rate. So if you were using a press fit device, make sure that it has coating that can be in growth. That's more than just that proximal part that's going to be um, fractured. And then make sure that, um, that it comes typically in like one millimeter increments. For me, I'm using a stem that has a kind of a polished coating distally. It's in a cylindrical bone. So I'm very much a believer to cement it at the appropriate height and then reconstruct the tuberosities anatomically around it. That works for me, and I think I think the data shows that's an effective strategy. Though others may may choose differently.
1: Mike, how are you? Are you, are you press fitting these, cementing these? Any any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah,
3: it's a good discussion. I, I think that uh, with certain devices now, I, I think it's easier for me personally to do diaphyseal press fit. Uh, and you know, if you look back at, you know, not in reverse, but, you know, in the HEMI stuff where J.P. Warner was published on, you know, 5.3 centimeters of where your head's going to go and you're measuring off your surgical neck and, and, and then cementing and holding it there and you get into the reverses and, you know, where's that perfect height and you're holding that cement. I, you know, I think with some of the, me personally, I think with some of the, if I can avoid cement, I'm going to. I think that there are questions uh, about stress shielding Etc. If you're getting diaphyseal fit, but I like to use a stem that you can get down, get a press fit. It's not all the way uh, coated, but it's it's a partially coated. That way, if God forbid something happened, you you it's a it's a little bit easier to get out of there. Uh, but I think it's key if you do that to have a system where you can build upon that, so you can build upon in increments before you finally put your body on if you will um and i I think that that just allows you to line up a little bit easier me and that's me personally and then build your tuberosities around that and and it seems to be you know for the reasons that grant said you know you're not over tensioning you're not under tensioning and you have some options built in versus if you just put your you know you put the cement in and
1: you, you know you're you're not balanced appropriately you know we, we, you know, we talk about this all the time, you know, what's the ideal, you know, you know, standard reverse, you know, how much lateralization do you need, this, that, the other. Does this change when you're doing it for a fracture? I know, Grant, you started to say you started to do something different, then you switched. Does your, you know, your ideal lateralization off the glenoid side change from, you know, a reverse for OA or cuffed arthropathy in a fracture? Do you change that? Do you change your humeral version? Are there different things that you do from a standard case? uh compared to a reverse for fracture um in, in this instance
0: for for me or for uh, somebody else anyone i'll just say real quick like i used to say oh i i want a less lateralization so my tuberosity is under less tension then i thought well wait a minute there's a higher instability rate for these fracture verses so maybe i want more lateralization and then i just couldn't figure it out so i just put it back to where i put for the standard ones and it seems to work fine, so that's that's my protocol.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's what important to guys- just remember that um, you know most most patients who have a, a fracture, their shoulders were normal prior to that fracture. They're not our cuff tear arthropathy patients. They're not our osteoarthritic patients, and so their anatomy was not unusual or abnormal. So I don't know. I think that there's far less actually to worry about in terms of. Um, decision-making you know you don't have to do the extensive capsule releases and things that we do when we're treating arthritic shoulders when you do a fracture reverse um, so I don't I don't really change anything other than I use a similar technique as Grant um, the only thing that I do differently is um, my stem is a larger diameter when I do it for a fracture than it, than it is when I do it for um, non-fracture situations. And, and the reason is I like my stem to be undersized in non-fracture situations because I can usually get good proximal press fit. Um, but in a in a fracture situation, you can't really get good proximal press fit usually. And so because of that, in order to engage and get some sort of rotational stability from the implant itself, I have to increase the diameter Um, and I think that's important because if you get proximal resorption of your tuberosities, now you have a bone loss situation. And if you don't have any engagement of your stem, then you have a tube inside of a tube and all the stress is felt by your bone cement junction and your implant will have a higher loosening rate, um, even though it's cemented. So I do just go larger diameter in my fractures.
3: What do you guys do for version out of curiosity, you know, in the fracture situation?
1: So I I do it in twenty degrees uh, aversion. Um, and idea there is you have a little bit more coverage around the, the tuberosity.
2: Me too. That's
1: where I learned it from. Same. Yeah. Me too. Um. Great. Uh, what do you you know? What do you? Uh, I I feel like I have. This is one of the. Hardest conversation that have sometimes with patients when you're talking about a reverse for fracture. And I think, Serena, you brought up this point, they had a normal shoulder, you know, five minutes before they broke it. And so when you say, hey, you're gonna have a reverse for fracture, uh, they're like, oh, my buddy had a reverse, he was out playing golf three months after it was, you know, Andy Jawa did it for an A-1 glenoid, he's doing great. You know, what what do you what do you tell these patients as far as what are your expectations? Um when you're getting a reverse for fracture when you know a lot of them are like oh yeah my buddy had a reverse you know they're often not the same and I, their frame of references is, is different because like you said the day before it it was uh they had a perfectly normal shoulder so what do you tell them as far as expectations we talked a little bit about expectations for non-operative management what do you, what do you tell these patients
2: i mean i think i usually start off my conversation with patients with proximal humerus fractures letting them know that no matter what we do they will lose range of motion everybody who's treated with a proximal humerus fracture whether it's non-surgically with fixation or with arthroplasty is going to lose some degree of range of motion for the most part we all have our unicorn patients but for the most part they'll lose some range of motion And so I try to tell them that our job is to try to lose as little range of motion as possible. And that usually means that they'll still be able to raise their arm up over their head and do some overhead tasks. But I tell them rotation will be unpredictable and related to how well um, the bones heal around the implant, particularly the tuberosity in terms of external rotation. And then I tell them that internal rotation behind the back, they will lose um, what they liked prior to surgery. And most patients will get to their back pocket on the same side. And so if they get better than that, fantastic. I look like a hero. And if they don't, then, you know, kind of is in line with what I think the average result is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see, I think there's uh this was a la- last poll question, I think, uh, you know, when, you know, if you're going to do a reverse. You know, do you, you know, how long do you immobilize them? When do you kind of, what's your post protocol for them? When do you let them get back to most things? Is it different from cuff Um, You know, I usually tell them what expectations and their progress go. I always go slower in these patients trying to maximize chances of tuberosity healing. And I'll often tell them, you know, you're kind of one visit behind where a typical patient would be. So where the typical patient would be at the six week point, or your you know your one visit behind them, it just a little bit longer to get there. Uh, and so we'll actually move on to some uh, pictures from the case. I think we talked about a lot of really good points. So as Grant mentioned, you know this was a picture of getting control of the lesser tuberosity. tagged that early. Uh, getting control over the greater tuberosity. Uh, different uh sutures going around uh, really getting control of that fragment um, glenoid exposure obviously a bit easier in this case because you don't have the head in the way so glenoid retractor positioning i, I do a little bit differently um and so this is just a, a bank art retractor that i'll put inferiorly to the glenoid and you could use it to depress the head out of the, uh, the stem of the, the shaft out of the way because you don't really have uh, a head there um and then you know i think like Sarana mentioned these are normal shoulders so these are shoulders where the glenoid has a lot of cartilage on it so I think there's a lot of technical points um, if you don't do these often or just to really be aware of is that number one you need to scrape off all the cartilage um, and then number two um, if you don't scrape off the cartilage and you use a guide it may really affect your uh, inclination because we know cartilage is thicker at the periphery um, and so really getting off all the cartilage from the glenoid, making sure your inclination versions where you want it to be. And obviously these are not arthritic shoulders. So the glenoid is really, really soft. So I always try and match what the patient's native anatomy is. So you minimize how much you end up reaming in these cases. Uh, here's the, the base plate that was put in. Um, and then uh, if you notice, I actually will change the sutures out um, after the base plate is in. And this was a, a tip I learned in fellowship that If you wait till, you know, after your glenosphere is in to kind of put in your final sutures, uh, you know, you run out of room. Um, So once the base plate is in, uh, go back, put the final sutures in for your tuberosity repair construct, um, and then uh, you don't have to worry about doing that later when you have a little bit more room to work. Uh, Here's a vertical sutures that are through the shaft. Um, I don't know. Are you all still using vertical fixation uh, in the shaft as well? Yeah standard. Uh, so I think, you know, just kind of little belt and suspenders helps out there. Uh, this is the stem, the stem that, you know, Grant talked about. Yeah, this is a, a stem. Um, we'll put the sutures through the stem before. Uh, so everything is set up, ready to go. Uh, obviously the sutures that are coming out, the medial aspect uh, through the top tuberosity will go through the stem and the lateral sutures uh, that are exiting the tuberosity will be allowed to tie it in over time. I <laughs> Just a little tip. I always put, you know, I've messed this up a few times, and then you realize you put the wrong sutures through the stem. So put a large clamp on the lateral one. So I try and keep things straight. After you cement, uh, get the stem in. Uh, Again, we mentioned version. I'll typically put it in 20 degrees retroversion. Um, And then when it comes to tuberosity repair, I'll, uh, you know, always, you know, instead of fixing it necessarily like a fracture where you get a perfect anatomic reduction, I'll try and over-reduce it slightly, meaning that there's a shingling effect. So some of the tuberosity is overhanging the shaft laterally. Um, And then uh, use those sutures to tie down the greater tuberosity. And then uh, do you guys always fix your lesser tuberosity? Do you let it fly? Are there instances where you make that uh, game time decision? Any thoughts on that at all?
0: I I typically fix mine. I think it's helpful for you know, if it heals for the rotational stability of the implant, but, you know, if, if it's, if it's, uh, doesn't heal or it's, you know, comminuted or whatever, I don't, I don't lose sleep over it.
1: Yeah. The, the way that, you know, I ended up, I ended up fixing these is, you know, just the one set of sutures through, through the tuberosity to the stem. And then I'll use one limb of those sutures to repair the lesser as opposed to an entire separate set of sutures. Um, And so the only time where I won't do that is if I feel there's too much force to get the subscap reduced because then it's the same set of sutures. So I wouldn't want to have the subscap under a lot of tension then have that almost as a distracting force on the greater tuberosity. Um, And then, so that was the final repair construct came back together nicely. It's always nice having a video, you know, move the arm around afterwards. It feels nice and solid, Um, short video. Um, And then I, Let's see. And then here was her final x-rays. Here's, uh, here's her one year uh, AP and uh, lateral x-rays. Um, so she did well. Um, this was a, a black and tan uh, cement technique uh, described by John Levy, where he used morselized bone graft proximally uh, to help cement uh, prevent cement extrusion. Uh, and, and fortunately, she did clinically uh, pretty well. And so I, I think all your points that you guys mentioned before, as far as getting the tuberosity to heal, getting in a good position, um, likely correlated
2: with her outcome. And unfortunately, you know, she did. She did pretty well. Yeah, Jacob, that looked great. I mean, you did a technically masterful job. And if you look at your post-op x-ray, I mean, if, other than the cement, which you wouldn't usually use on your primary cases, I mean, you could, you could, that could be a primary, you know, reverse done for any other indication.
0: Looks beautiful. You're going to get tickets to her next concert, I, I surmise. <laughs> nice job. We'll
1: see. We'll see. I appreciate it. Well, I, I think that brings us to the end of the case. Uh, certainly, if there's other things to get brought up, but, uh, certainly appreciate everyone's time. And this was a great discussion. Learned a ton from you all, as always, which is why I love having you get around and, uh, I appreciate everyone's time and I hope you all enjoyed the case